Good, good. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, hope you're doing well. Welcome to Mosaic. If I haven't met you yet, I would really, really like to. And uh, just give you a high five or a fist bump or whatever. Uh, we, our mission at Mosaic is uniting people in the way of Jesus. And so we're glad you're here along that journey. Um, we have, uh, uh, along with that mission, we have a thought about what if, what if being united is more than just nodding along at the same kinds of information together. I think our culture, a lot of times, being united means we all have to think the same thoughts about the same things. And what if unity actually is a lot deeper than that? Uh, what if unity is about, about the, the, the spirit of heart agreement, like attunement to each other as we follow Jesus? It actually makes more space that we, we can differ on some things and not be a threat to each other, not be a threat to how we view the world and, and, and so on. I think, I think that, that question, what if unity is more than just nodding at the same information and agreement, uh, that is a question that's important for us today because we are, we're beginning a new message series called The State of the Church. Uh, we're going to be talking about cultural issues that the church in America is facing and how Mosaic intends uh, and is, is venturing in the fray to address these different issues. So I've got to get, give credit to Pastor Ben Deaver. This is his idea. It's a bull idea, and I think it's a good one. If you don't, his uh, email is bendeaver at mosaicmhk.com. You can tell him all about it. And uh, no, but I think, I think it's going to be uh, the next four weeks. Uh, it, it, it's going to be a little bit different of, uh, kind of series uh, because we really are going to be focused about how Jesus and culture intersect, and how, what the church must do about it uh, to, be, to be good citizens of the world and citizens of the kingdom at the same time. Uh, today, th it, this may seem a little abstract, what we're going to talk about today, because we're going to talk about uh, speaking with a prophetic voice, okay? How to, in a way, reclaim a prophetic voice in the church among the culture, Okay? Uh, and this is, this is important for us because one of our motives, one of our values at Mosaic is engagement over avoidance. And so we want to be a people who actually engage in hard topics. Now, this could be interpersonal issues as things arise in, in our personal relationships between another. We want to engage each other instead of sweeping things under the rug and kind of ignoring things and pretending everything's fine. We actually want to love each other by speaking truth and love to each other. But that also means an engagement over avoidance. It means that when we see things in our world that Scripture, and in particular Jesus, has something to say, we want to say the same things. Speaking with kindness, truth, love, and grace, right? That's what it means to have a prophetic voice. So, so when I say prophetic Sometimes we think of, like it's the people that say, thus saith the Lord, and then have some kind of message that follows after that. That, that could be, that's, or, or they predict the future. This is going to happen on this date, on this time. That's not mostly what I'm talking about. What I'm mostly talking about is having God's heart for people and speaking that heart forth. Maybe correctively, maybe encouraging them, but it's speaking truth as if God's heart were speaking through us to people around us. That's what I mean by being a prophetic voice and being a prophetic church. We want to engage, 
prophetically with the people all around us, okay? So let me illustrate it like this. Um, Imagine that you live in America in the 1960s and you're watching the civil unrest unfold in our nation as the civil rights movement is gaining steam. In August 1963, so just about 60 years ago, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the featured speaker at the March on Washington where 260,000 people gather in D.C. to be a part of the historic event. Dr. King gives what many believe to be one of the most iconic historic speeches ever. On this fateful day, in his I Have a Dream speech, he says this. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon, light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note in which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that, the, that America has defaulted on this promissory note and as far as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. My goodness, is that just not powerful or what? So the question that begs to be asked amidst the appeals to our nation's founding, the metaphor of the bounce check we ask, where in the world did Dr. King get the authority to say the things that he did? Was it because he had, was an amazing uh, rhetorical speech, speaker? Was he an amazing community organizer? Did, did he get handed uh, power and prestige and, and he just commanded authority? Those things are all true, But that's not where he gets the authority to stand up in front of all of those people and all of these decades later be known singularly in a lot of people's minds for this speech and for the movement that he was a part of. He elaborates on what he calls this sacred obligation, where he gets the authority to say what he says and to challenge the halls of power. This sacred obligation, he elaborates, and he says this, No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. So he quotes Micah and Isaiah, Old Testament prophets. His authority was grounded on the word of God. Before 
He was ever a community organizer and known anywhere he was a reverend. He was a minister of the gospel of Jesus, seminary educated, practiced in the ways of the black church and its rhetoric and the waves of speaking. His authority came from the word of God where he saw injustice play out decade after decade, century after century, and he called the halls of power to task, saying God will not stand for this injustice, that every hill will be brought low in the name of the Lord, and justice will flow in America. That's where he got his power. That's where he got the authority to speak the things that he did. So, what I want to do today is really dig into this. For us, we may never be known, and probably not, like a Martin Luther King Jr. We may not have the prominence or place. We may never have the kind of rhetorical skill to be known for our great speeches. But we can still be a prophetic church with our authority, not resting on how many there are of us, our great opinions, our, you know, how we vote, how any of those things of how we're known, but it can be rested on the authority of God's power through the scripture. That's what I want to dig into. And I just want to talk a bit today about how to lean into that for us. Little Mosaic Church in the middle of Nowheresville, Kansas, we can rest on the same authority and the same power as we're speaking truth to the halls of power in the name of Jesus, okay? So I want to do something. I, I, I want to read a list of five things that set apart the early church and how it looked, why it looked so different from the culture around it. And then I want to ask a question at the end, okay? Tim Keller actually says this in, in the article that he wrote, and he's summarizing another uh, scholar's work called Larry Hurtado, he says this, in the first three centuries, Christians were persecuted more than any other religious group because they refused to honor other gods or worship the emperor. They were seen as ex too exclusive, too narrow, and a threat to the social order. So why, if Christians were seen as offensive and were excluded from circles of influence and business and often put to death, did anyone become a Christian? The Christian church was a unique social project. They were a contrast community, a counterculture that was both offensive and yet also attractive to many. But what made the Christian community so different is what he asked. Here's why it was different. One, the early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. I mean, if you look at examples like Acts 13, where you had all these different people coming together in leadership from different ethnic groups, different nations, coming together in church leadership, were being a part of a movement of discipleship and spreading the gospel throughout the known and even unknown world, okay? We see a remarkable unity between the different races and nations centered on the person of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Two, the early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. So Christians were often excluded and criticized and persecuted. Um, they were imprisoned, attacked, and often killed. And yet, in the midst of that, Christians taught a kind of nonviolence, a kind of reconciliation and kindness towards those who saw themselves as the church's opponents. They taught, in, in this honor and shame culture, they taught forgiveness and blessing not retaliating in kind but but turning one cheek 
and offering the other cheek to be struck as well. There's a radical way of living in a violent dog-eat-dog world. Christians didn't ridicule, they didn't taunt their opponents, and they, they never repaid violence with violence. Third, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. It was expected that you would care for the poor and the needy of your own family or your own tribe, but actually care for strangers, to offer hospitality, to invite the sick in, um, it was unheard of. In fact, during the plagues, when people were leaving Rome by the droves, Christians actually moved into the city to care for the dying and the sick. Uh, the Roman government was known to have said, they love our poor more than we do. They, and in fact, it was said that they were promiscuous in the kind of help that they offered to the poor, the early church was. Fourth, the early church was a community committed to the sanctity of life. So abortion wasn't very common. It was a very risky surgical procedure. But what was common was that children could be put out for exposure to die in the wilderness and the elements if the paterfamilias, the father of the family, was, uh, uh, didn't want them. If they were somehow um, uh, uh, disabled or if, if it was a, a girl baby um, and, and it wasn't wanted, it could be put out to die. And Christians would go and, and collect and adopt into their own families these, these uh, uh, babies that would have died, that they believed in a, in a what, what we might say, a womb-to-tomb belief in the sanctity of life, that all life is valuable, that everyone is created in the image of God and has dignity and should be cared for. And then lastly, fifth, the early church was a sexual countercultural, uh, counterculture. So the Roman culture insisted that, that married women were... Um, uh, uh, stayed, re remained faithful in their marriage, but it was expected that husbands uh, uh, visited different places for, for intercourse and other activities, and Christians stood against that and said, no, we believe that God has given us the institution of marriage, and we believe in the fidelity of marriage between one husband and one wife for life, uh, until death do they part, as it said contemporarily, and so it, uh, the, the, the ethic of sexuality was shunned by the culture but deeply embraced. And the strength of, of, of marriage and family helped bolster Christian influence on that culture. So, let me ask you this. The early church experienced unity across ethnic boundaries that was multicultural. They were a community of nonviolence, forgiveness, and reconciliation. They were famous for hospitality to the poor and suffering. They were committed to a sanctity of life, and it was a sexual counterculture. Name, if you look at those, uh, uh, like many of us, you're probably looking at which one are these are conservative values and which of these are liberal values. Because that today is the framework that we often use to judge things. We have a box that we're trying to fit things in, and we even do that to our faith, where we have a preexistent box based on partisan politics, and we look at a list like this and go, you know, some of those really fit the party platform, right? Like the, the sanctity of life, and, and, and that, that's, that's just like a mainstay of the conservative platform. And yet, and yet, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable because, you know, nonviolence, that's, that's like, that's like kind of progressive. That's kind of like liberal in a way, isn't it? And the church did that. Well, they, you know, you know, that was a long time ago. They probably had some learning to do, kind of growing up in their faith. But like the multiculturalism, that's more of like if we have a box, 
that either fits or doesn't fit in the box that I usually have that I take into the voting booth. Not, not to mention the, the care for the poor and the suffering and the hospitality and the giving of alms and, and, and lots of money to, uh, to people. So, so in other words, there's about three of these that fit progressive values. There's one that pre, pre, uh, fits in conservative values. And the last one, let's be honest, the conservative party would love to adopt a sexual counterculture, but this means that the no-fault divorce that's commonly practiced today does not fit, uh, let this fit in either kind of progressive or, or conservative category. So if you're bringing a, a, a political framework to the Bible and reading it, you're going to be super frustrated because the early church practicing the way of Jesus doesn't fit nicely into your, our United States politics. Do you know why that is? Because the kingdom of God supersedes all other kingdoms of this world. It's because the kingdom of God does not fit nicely into any nation's political order. It's, it's meant to upend and to explicitly frustrate any political claims that someone would try and have on the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and he flips those tables right over. And he, has, he doesn't even break a sweat challenging our political partisanship in the process of that okay we're still friends right like i'm just in the introduction i'm just getting going but like i just want to make sure okay we love jesus together <laughs> okay okay so this is this is a little um abstract and it's a little unique in the way that i want to approach these things but i do i do want to want to just stress we cannot as any kind of church, let alone the church that we sit in and, and we call our home community, we cannot be beholden to any political party. We cannot be beholden to any kind of movement, any kind of even big business or any kind of like tech bros. Any of that cannot come first. Because when we, when we see ourselves first as those things and secondarily as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as a believer... We are beholden to those frameworks, and instead of challenging them when, where they need to be challenged, we will end up blocking for them, making excuses and justifying bad behavior that actually brings more and more oppression to this earth, more and more usury, greed, economic woes, things like that. So we, we as the church stand in the culture, but, but distinctly apart from the culture that we find ourselves in. Beholden first and primarily to Jesus and his kingdom, okay? So let me, let me just read this. I wrote this, and, and let's see if this makes sense. When we view these features through a left-right binary, we discourage ourselves from living in the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms lives and ushers us into the human experience of flourishing that Jesus has to offer. We are meant to live freely in God's presence in our everyday lives, unencumbered by the sin and weight that replaces God's joy. And if we see certain behaviors as left-wing and right-wing when they're not, they're actually just kingdom, we rob ourselves and each other of the power of God in our lives. When we see these things first through a partisan political lens, we'll miss God's activity and what His Spirit is actively trying to form us into, actively resisting the movement of the Spirit. If we see God's heart for the poor and we label it as a left-wing venture, we will actually push back and resist the movement of the Spirit that wants our hearts broken for the needy. 
You understand that? If we, if we label something as conservative and say that's just what those right-wingers believe in, we will actually step out of the stream of God's grace, moving the church towards being actively involved in those things, and we'll find ourselves actively resisting God's movement in our own lives. It's a dangerous game to play to put anything over and against the kingdom of God because of whatever framework we've already brought into the conversation. If we allow certain expressions of God's liberating love to be discouraged, we rob ourselves also of the power to be a prophetic witness to the world. God's kingdom, like I've said, does not fit into a left-right binary. He's not Republican. He's not Democrat. We can and we should, hear this please, have robust discussions about which policies of both parties reflect God's will. But let us never forget that the kingdom of God will overcome all the kingdoms of this world. To be a prophetic witness means to challenge the status quo. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the gentle slope without signposts that slowly and gradually leads away from God. The church of Jesus is meant to be a signpost in the other direction. Saying, danger, you're moving away from God. And you want to reverse course. That's called repentance. And be restored into God's presence. We want to call believers back to fidelity and call the culture to task for his decadent ways of greed, harm, usury, and abuse. So I want to take just a couple, uh, a few minutes and look at examples from the scripture about how people spoke up first inwardly towards the believers, the people of God, and then also to the culture around them as well. So we're going to start in Jeremiah. This is chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. Though as a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of its harvest. So Jeremiah is establishing here that from a young age, he's been called to be a prophet, a, a, a spokesperson from God to particularly the nation of Israel. He's establishing his authority here, and he's saying, this doesn't come from my charisma, my talents. Nobody voted me to be a prophet. God raised me up, and he put words into my mouth that I have to, if you know Jeremiah and his story, if, if I don't speak, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I, I'm, I'm disturbed within until I get the message of God out to where it belongs, okay? So Christopher Walken, in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, do not freak out over critical theory. He means it kind of tongue-in-cheek. Just nobody get triggered by biblical critical theory. It's a wonderful book, okay? You should check it out. Um, he says this, when, when God's people, some of you go, critical theory, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's totally okay. Just stay there. Blissful unawareness. We'll move on. It's great. When God's people are living under a false consciousness, thinking that their security lies in being the descendants of Abraham, or that with the temple in their midst, they are protected from God's judgment, the prophets administer a healthy dose of uncomfortable reality. One notable feature of such prophetic invective is that the prophet does not exempt himself or herself from his condemnation. There is no sense in the rhetoric of the prophets of the righteous setting in judgment on the unrighteous for the very good reason that there is no one who does good, not even one. That's from Psalm 14. There is in no way, uh, this in no way undermines the prophet's authority because the locus of authority is not with the prophet who speaks, but with the God whose words are spoken. If the prophet were speaking in his or her own name, 
then for their words to have any authority at all, they would have to exempt themselves from the charges of deception and false consciousness they level at the nation. But because the locus of authority is outside their own judgment, they can include themselves in his condemnation without undermining their message. So, in other words, they can speak out and not be hypocritical because they themselves are implicated in what's wrong with the nation. It reminds me of the G.K. Chesterton. We're not actually sure if this, this, uh, this happened, but there was a newspaper that was taking uh, submissions for what, what is wrong with the world today. And G.K. Chesterton says, I am. Ser- sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It's such a prophetic but tongue-in-cheek way to say, like, we're all part of the problem here. Now, what's unique in Israel is that it, when you consider other nations, right, um, no one speaks against the, ch- the king in Babylon because you would lose your head, quite literally. No one speaks against those powerful elites, those in the halls of of injustice or whatever, but, but in Israel, God has baked something in called the prophets, that he raises up self-critique from within the nation. They are raised up every so often when the nation is going wayward, and God puts a message in their mo- mouth, hopefully, so that the nation, all the people, the kings, the priesthood, all those people repent and re- are restored back to God's presence. It's unheard of that in any nation... In, in the ancient world, that there would be a prophetic messenger that would use such rhetoric, such comical skills, writing to the king and calling him to account. But that's exactly what God does. There's a self-corrective baked into scripture spoken through the prophets. Okay, so Jeremiah says this, continuing in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob's, Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So all throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see God's heart being expressed through the prophets. Now, that's oftentimes where if you would read the scripture, you would see, you, you might get the idea that God is this big, mean, angry God that just wants to rain down fire and lightning bolts and things like that. It, it really is not that. I want you to hear his heart about what his desire is for his people. He's made a covenant with Abraham for the people of Israel to be their God, to be their protector, to be their provider. And and yet they switch out their fidelity to other nations, other idols that are are worthless. They can't speak, they can't act, they can't do those things. And God, God is heartbroken that the people that he loves and has, has chosen as his special possession, his special treasure would look to security and prosperity in all these other avenues and areas of life. So that's the heart that I want you to hear, that these, the, the prophet like Jeremiah speaks forth God's heart and calls the nation back. And in the midst of that, he gives them critique after critique about how their hearts have wandered far from him. Okay? And yet, he also starts to speak about the other nations that surround Israel. He says this in, verse, in chapter 50, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord, through both, uh, spoke through Jeremiah the prophets concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. 
Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured. Bel will be put to shame. Marduk, those are those, are those uh, uh, Babylonian gods, idols that they worship. Marduk will be filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it, but people and animals will flee away. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. So there's there's a, there's a critique to the surrounding cultures and nations around Israel. And there's also a hope. There's also given a, a, a timeline that the Lord speaks through the prophet and says, at that time then, Israel will return. They will be repentant. They will have tears and come and seek me again. So it strikes this hopeful note in the midst of, of judgment and critique. Okay? So the prophets use vivid imagery to denounce the evil ways of the nation. Satire here is even used. I don't know if you picked up on that, but when he is, he is critiquing uh, uh, the nation of Babylon, he's saying your idols are going to be afraid. They're going to be put to shame. Um, in, in other words, he imagines that they have these, these emotions, these statues have emotions, and God is so great that these dumb and deaf statues are going to come alive and have these deep emotions of regret. So baked in here, the, there are all these rhetorical devices that the, it's not just like fire and brimstone. There's actually humor that the prophets use. There's poetry. There's song. Uh, things like that that they use in order to offer this kind of critique both to Israel and other nations. Okay, but why? If Israel's the center of God's plan for redemption, why does God care about the surrounding nations? What does it matter? Why doesn't, Israel, why doesn't God just focus on Israel, let the world be the world, and, and not bat an eye at their behavior? And I would say two reasons. One, because God cares about people. Because God cares about how the people in Babylon are treated. Babylonians and other surrounding nations did horrible things. The, the government was oppressive. There was, there was a, an emperor or king or, or whoever sitting at the top of the hierarchy. No one could ask any questions lest they be put to death. There was economic oppression. There was enslavement. There was oppression of women and children. We've already talked about how the Romans put children out at a whim if they were unwanted. So God cares about those people even though they don't live in Israel. God cares about all the people of the world because we are made in his image. And he has an opinion about how people, non-Christians, non-Jews, non-Israelites are treated, even though they're not in the in-group at that time. He cares about subjugation, oppression, slavery, and he has a lot to say about it through the prophets. And secondly, um, is, uh, God cares what happens to Israel. God critiques these surrounding cultures and nations because of the ways they entice Israel to compromise her faith. And they are nations at war. So they're constantly at the borders of Israel, uh, threatening to overrun Israel and to put them in, in slave, slavery, both economic and, and physical. So God has an opinion on, on how Israel is treated by the surrounding nations. And so as we take a step back, we see that the writers of scriptures have a framework when they look at the world, both Old Testament and New Testament, in fact. They view God as the ultimate reality that exists. God is the creator and the sustainer of heaven. History ebbs and flows. Nations come and go. They rise and they fall. And the writers of Scripture are constant in their opinion that God sits above it all. And he uses history to his ends. He will use a Babylon to chastise Israel. 
And then he will later judge Babylon for that same behavior because he's God. And he knows this, this is the theater of his glory on the world stage. And he can use fallen mankind for his purposes to be advanced in the midst of that. So let's look at, uh, I want to look at a quick example from the early church, from the scriptures, uh, engaging in self-writing critique, okay? So there's some cultural history, some biblical history in here, but we're going to dive right in and I'll kind of explain it as we go, okay? So we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches in the regions of Galatia, and he says this, when Cephas, this is, this is, he's writing about the Apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that sounds warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? <laughs> that just sounds like unity in the early church, doesn't it? Uh, if unity is about agreeing with the same things and nodding at the same kinds of information, but this is actual uh, uh, confrontation that does lead to deeper unity. So Paul is saying, when, I, when, when, when Peter came to town, I threw him a welcoming party, and I dressed him down in front of everyone that wanted to watch. Okay? He says, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Jews uh, in, in Old Te- Testament tradition ate uh, specifically only with Jews. Gentiles ate uh, then without Jews in their presence. Uh, God gave a revelation to Peter specifically that, that no animal is unclean and no person is unclean, so table fellowship is now open to everyone. Uh, a lot of times uh, you'll hear scholars talk about how the gospel went from table to table because of table fellowship and who they invited and included in to their meals that was just scandalous uh, at that time. Uh, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, one of the early pillars of the early church. Um, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So apparently, in, in this kind of separation between Jews and Gentiles during mealtime, the, the message was getting across that actually to follow God, you needed to follow Jewish practices. And they had already earlier established that that's not the truth. But Peter got caught up with a, with a sect, with, a, with a, an in-group, of uh, Jewish Christians that actually were trying to smuggle in dead religion for everybody to follow. And Paul saw this as a threat to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is about grace by faith. It's about believing in the work of Jesus, what he has done for you in your place, not by doing certain things to uphold and keep the law. Peter was going back on that agreement, and it threatened the very core of the gospel as it was being shared with young and new believers. And so, so Paul met Peter and said, you're, you're not acting right. You need to get right so we have a, a clear gospel witness so that people can be saved and not ha- heaped on these additional burdens by which no one can be brought into God's presence and, and be reconciled, okay? So we take this as an early example of the church self-writing, writing itself according to doctrine and according to the love of God so that people could follow in the way of Jesus without encumbrance. Christopher Walken continues again in his book. He says this, 
this impulse to self-critique, allied to self-critique streaming from an external locus of authority, is an important figure in the Christian view of reality. Indeed, it is of the highest importance that the Christian tradition contains in its recognition of the Bible as uniquely normative, a self-critical element integral and essential to it. The gesture of self-critique is not limited to the Old Testament prophets. It sets a pattern for the whole church, whole of church history, in which the church from Athanasius to Luther to Kierkegaard can be understood as a gesture of reformation, whereby the essentially secular order of existing or established church is undermined in order to approach the religious core of faith. In other words, lots of words, lots of big words there. What he's saying is, in its DNA, the church contains, through the tradition even of the prophets, the church contains the necessity to self-correct. When the church practices a form of religion that gets away from the faith and relationship with Jesus, God raises up a voice to call it back to faithfulness. We need that in the church. We need Peters and Pauls that correct, can withstand each other to their faces. We need the Dorothy Sayers. We need the Kierkegaards. We need the Bonhoeffers to to be raised up to say, this is not how we follow Jesus together. You're getting wayward. You're getting way left wing, way right wing. I'm I'm opposite for myself, but I think I hit you on the right side. You've got to come back to the center. The center is Jesus. It's not in being beholden to a group or a category, a political platform, a movement, a, a big business, a, a tech movement. It's in Jesus. And so we oftentimes can look at their church and go, man, they just can't get along, can they? And some of that is true. Like we need unity. We need to have the, 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 the what is it, the spirit of peace and the bond of love, or the spirit of love and the bond of peace. It's one of those things, and they're both awesome, so we need them. But we also need this self-writing critique where God raises up voices and calls us back to fidelity in Jesus through the gospel. Not adding nor subtracting things from it, but holding to the center who is Jesus who will lead us to God, okay? So I want to turn uh, and give us a, a few practical points And hopefully this drives this home for us and just kind of gives us something to hang on to. How do we speak as a prophetic church? Well, first, even talking about uh, speaking out on issues gives some of us hives. (laughs) We're just anxious. Like, you want me to say what to who? Like, um, there's some of us that you stress about sending food back when the waitstaff got it wrong. You're like, I don't want to trouble them. I, I just want everybody to be happy. I love that. I love that. You, uh, some of you, you lose sleep because you, you sent a strongly worded email to the airline company that lost your baggage. You lose sleep because you go, did I use too many exclamation marks? I don't know. Am I ever going to see my luggage back? I just want people to like me. I love that. Um, to respond to the call of God means often to get passionate about something. And you will have to step on some toes. That will make us uncomfortable. And it should. We should never take for granted that there's an image bearer sitting across from us, receiving our order at a restaurant, or receiving the email, or the strongly worded YouTube comment, or whatever it is. There's a human being on the other side of that. So, well done to say, I care about people and how I come across to them. But sometimes, God raises us up to say hard things, and people's feelings will get hurt. And it means to challenge the status quo, and people are deeply invested in keeping things the same that are working for them already. 
okay? And yet, I also realize that there are some of us who love to speak truth to power. You do it every day. You do it to your spouses. You do it to your kids. You speak truth all the time. You come out both guns blazing on any kind of issue. You have no problem laying on the horn when someone cuts you off on your way to church with your mosaic sticker on the back. Like, I have no, that's just totally <laughs> hypothetical in my house. But you have no problem gra grabbing the mic at the city commission about the issue du jour and dropping that mic for all on Facebook to see. Like, you have no problem doing that. And so bravo to you for saying hard things, for for venturing into the fray where few of us would really want to go. And yet, God may be calling you to a season where you actually discern, discern what is your fight to fight. I, I remember uh, Sarah shared with this with me a, a lot of times. Her mom used to say to her, because she's an Enneagram 8, so she sp speaks all kinds of truth to me all the time. Um, her mom said to her, the, the need is not the call. And I think there's such wisdom in that. Like, there's need everywhere. And for some of us that, that speak truth unabashedly, uh, a quick road to burnout is to speak truth all the time and just put your emotional energy behind every cause that is right in front of you. The need is not necessarily the call for us all the time. And so it may be a season that God calls you in to heighten your sense of this is the mission, this is the cause to which God has called me. And it may be a season of listening and discerning, and not assuming that you have the right thing to say to the right people all the times, okay? What I want us to realize is that we need each other. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5, we just studied this. Um, speaking the truth in, uh, 4, 15, excuse me. Speaking the truth in love. So speaking the truth in love, actively doing that as a lifestyle. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Some people have a bent towards truth. Some people have a bent towards love. We deeply need each other. I believe in this community, there are people, and, and it's not a binary, it's usually a spectrum, but I believe God has placed people on both ends of that spectrum all the way in between to help us hold the tension of truth and love together. So we know how to speak, what to speak, to whom to speak, and all those things so that we speak, yes, but we do so in love. We need each other. Brash and offended is no way to represent God. To be a part of the cultural offense, uh, the, the uh, culture of offense in our world today, where everything is a hot button issue, that you're required to speak out on everything, that everything demands your attention, that everything needs acknowledgement, everything needs challenge. That is, that is the the quick road to burnout for us. Jeremiah, in fact was known as a weeping prophet. God is slow to anger. We need to remember these things. In fact, uh, Jeremiah, when he, he would get these hard words to speak directly to the kings and priesthood of Israel, he would weep because he knew that the, these people were so hard-hearted that, that repentance was unlikely. And yet his heart broke for those that did not want to hear his message. I mean, he got thrown in pits, he got rejected. He got persecuted for carrying the word of the Lord. And yet his heart still broke for the people of his city and for his, his nation. Are you heartbroken over any of the evil that exists in our city? Are you heartbroken over the brokenness in those closest to you? Unless we have God's heart and it moves us to deep emotion, 
we may need to take a season of listening and actually getting God's heart instead of just thinking, I know what to tell them. I know what's going to, to, to move them towards where I want them. It's usually more self-centered if we don't have the heart of the Lord. We may have the words of the Lord, but it's, it's not the whole truth if we don't have the heart of the Lord to speak that sits behind it. Okay? I want you to hear the heart of Jesus for the people who are about to reject him and his offer of reconciliation. In Luke 13, 34, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Hear that heart of Jesus to say, my heart for you, God's heart for you, O Jerusalem, is that I would nurture you and care for you and collect you and and, and help you grow into the full expression of who God wants you to be. But no, you didn't want that. You hear the heartbrokenness. And then in Luke 19, again in Luke, he says this in, in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept. You know, there's only a few times that, he, that he's recorded as having wept. When his friend Lazarus died and how it impacted his sisters, Mary and Martha, and over Jerusalem, he, he looks out over the city that's about to reject him, and he is heartbroken. He wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. So tone matters. How we say what we say deeply matters. And in our, in our world where everything is on fire, it's never more so true that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And to be that voice that is candid, that is clear, that is direct, but is unabashedly kind in a world full of hate will set us apart just in itself. And then finally, prophetic critique is not based on our whim. It doesn't center our preferences or the, things, the, the way we want things to be for us. It's always grounded in the gospel of Jesus. It's always about the glory of God and the good news of his son. It's the only news that truly sets people free. That's the only, the only news I want to deliver when I'm saying this issue needs to be addressed. This needs to be fixed. This needs to be voted for. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus compels us to say so. It's not a recapitulation to the better, day, the better ways or better days of how things were. It's not getting our bubble and our preferences and everybody dressing and thinking and talking alike and just you know, replicating that in the culture. It's always the center who is Jesus. That's the authority, and that's what we bring it back to. Do you, do you hear this? Like, It's not about what we want. It's about what God wants. It's not about how us telling people how to live their lives. It's about walking out the ethic of the gospel in everyday life. When we read the declarations of the prophets and the apostles, we see them speaking out against the injustice done to others. They don't even center themselves. They don't say, I've been mistreated, and therefore that's really got me thinking about the, the evil in our society. No, it's about the oppression that I see towards a group of people. It's not about me. It's not about how I've been treated, how I've been persecuted, how I've been dismissed. It's about them, and it's about the gospel being worked out and how they're treated by others. Me, you forget me. I'm, I'm just the mailman. I just deliver the mail, and I'm forgotten. That's how we do prophetic critique. We're just the messengers. 
We're just the church of Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about him and us arranging a meeting so people can see his heart for them and how that leads to human flourishing. The joy, the happiness, the contentment that they want is found only in Jesus. So you might be wondering, shouldn't the church, because when I talk about prophetic critique towards the culture, we often think, shouldn't the church take care of itself first? Why worry about culture? Culture's going to culture, right? Because we're, and I should say this, when I talk about the culture, I'm not setting, some people talk about the culture like it's the boogeyman, like the culture is out to get you and your kids and your family and take away your rights. That's not it, right? The culture, it's not us versus them. I'm not a culture warrior. I'm not trying to inscript us into some kind of war where we go just vote our ways into power, Okay. But why do we care about it in the first place? Shouldn't we just take care of ourselves? And that's true. Jesus said, hey, before you worry about the little teeny speck in your neighbor's eye, worry about that two by four that's sticking out of yours, okay? So that's true. We, we need to have demonstrable character in the way of Jesus. The, the patience and kindness and love and self-control. Those character qualities of Jesus. But to say it's only about taking care of ourselves... I have to push it back against that. It's, it's not either or. It's not either we take care of the church or we speak truth to power. It's both and. It's yes, we take care of the church's business in the church. No, we don't necessarily expect people in the culture to act like Christians, but we do expect them to not oppress, to not steal, to not uh, uh, have economic oppression, enslavement, things like that. It's both and. And here's, here's what I'll say to this. When, when the church does not do an adequate job of taking care of its business, God will still raise people up from the culture to speak to these issues. Let me give you two examples. First one would be the Catholic Church. Um, I'm keeping it PG because we have kids in here, but the Catholic Church and all its uh, sexual abuse issues and things like that did not take care of its business for so many decades. So what, what did God do to confront the... And I really believe this. Because of the cover-up, God still raised people up that were either previously Catholic or had, you know, had no religious background uh, at like the, the uh, Boston Globe to release uh, article after article uncovering all of the abuses that happened. God still raises people up to correct what needs correcting. The choice is, will the church get involved? Um, I've, I've heard, I've read many times, do you know what the difference is between uh, like the Black Lives Matter movement, the civil uh, righteousness um, and, and civil unrest movement that's happening today versus the 60s, 60 years ago? The difference is that in the 60s, it was led by the church. The black church uh, locked arms with other churches, e even uh, Jewish synagogues and, and Jewish leaders to speak out against uh, oppression and, and, and civil, uh, uh, civil uh, uh, rights issues. The issue today is that the church can't figure out enough what it believes about uh, 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 oppression, that it's taken a back seat, and there are secular movements like Black Lives Matter, um, and it doesn't matter, I, I'm not getting into like what you think, I think the phrase in and of itself is true and good and beautiful and gospel-centered. Black lives do matter, okay? 
But it, 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 what happens because the church refuses to get involved, because we see civil rights as a liberal issue maybe, and maybe we're on more of a conservative end of things, we take a back seat, but God still raises up voices. The problem is that in a secular culture like ours, it's the secular voice that is being spoken, and it's not speaking from a biblical worldview or a set of biblical values, and so there are all these other things that get get um, uh, uh, brought into the issue and partnered with the issue. What could it have been like 10, 20 years ago if the church would have said, Black Lives Matter, we absolutely believe that. We absolutely see how Jim Crow laws and redlining has affected in the last 40 years the economic stability of, of black Americans. And we want to be a part of doing something to restore justice and equity across the board. What if the church would have said that? But we didn't. We held back. And that vacuum, because nature abhors a vacuum, has been um, inhabited by a secular worldview to get the same thing done, but more. And so we just, anyway, I'm not going to go down that too far. But do you see what I mean? When we hold back, when we, when we mute our voices, God will still find a way for those things to be addressed. But his invitation for us is to be a prophetic church, to be his prophetic voice, and not, not the only one, but one of the prophetic voices where we say, hey, that is not right. That is not biblical. That is not according to the gospel. And I can't rest until something is done about it, okay? So, I've told this story before. I'm going to land this plane so we can... Wow, I went over a little bit. Okay, I'm going to actually just wrap up. I'm going to have the worship team and the communion servers come up. Um, in light of that, why don't you stand with me? And I just I want us to ask two questions today. I want us to sit with this, maybe uh, during the rest of this, of this gathering, maybe throughout the week. Ask ourselves two questions. Where is God inviting me to listen? And where is he calling me to speak? Where is he calling me to listen? To open my ears to his voice and his presence. And where is he calling me to speak to injustice? So with that, we have been um, partaking of the Lord's Supper every week. And as a part of that, we've been saying the Lord's Prayer together. So this is an opportunity for us to be reminded about the sacrificial gift of Jesus' life for us to be reconciled back to him and his Father in the power of the Spirit. And so, in the bread, in the breaking of bread, Jesus said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Remember me. And in the shedding of his blood, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. So we do this to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. So I don't invite you. Uh, you don't have to be a member here at this church, but we ask that you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus and a right relationship with others in, in the church, in the body of Christ. You're welcome to come up the middle aisle and partake. We have a gluten-free option here in the middle if that suits you better. Uh, and then uh, you can return to your seats on the, on the side. So let's say the Lord's Prayer uh, together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.